over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Well, we come to Luke in our the big book cover to cover series, and I want us again to read another section. This lays out so much in these four verses. It is a rich, rich text, and it's worthy of about four sermons, just these four verses. And let's read Luke chapter one, verses one through four. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So this opening salvo is very important. The the words, the language he uses are so compressed. You authors, you writers, you people that live in a world of copy will appreciate this. And if you take a little time to look at what he's saying in those four simple strophes. He's going about a task. He's doing research. He's compiling other information about the person of Jesus Christ, about the works. He's organizing it. We have no certainty what his materials were. There is this so-called Q document that scholars and critics refer to as this original document. Uh, Mark's gospel was the oldest gospel. It was also the shortest gospel. So we have a good idea that he probably had access to Mark's record, but he also had more information. He is very close to Paul. And there is some debate about whether the the gospel was early or late in its writing. It really doesn't matter. But the association between Paul and Luke come out in in big ways in the the book of Acts. When we get there, we'll talk about that a bit. Let's look for our friends Bo Bo and Wilkerson in the talk to the Bible. I love what they do, and they do it in such an excellent way. Luke, a Gentile physician, builds his gospel narrative around an historical, chronological presentation of Jesus' life. Luke's is the longest and most comprehensive of the four Gospels, presenting Jesus Christ as the perfect man who came to seek and save sinful men. Growing belief and growing opposition develop side by side. I thought about that phrase all week long. I don't know where you or I get the idea that life's going to get better and easier and we do things right and we're going to be blessed. It's all going to be, you know, hunky-dory and swimmingly easy. I love the sentence. Growing opposition, side-by-side growing belief. His claims are challenged to count the cost of discipleship. Those who oppose him will not be satisfied until the Son of Man hangs lifeless on a cross. But... The resurrection ensures that his ministry of seeking and saving the lost will continue in his disciples once they have been equipped with his power. 
Um, so let's get the lay of the land, this, this man named Luke, this, what he's about, how his gospel unfolds. He is a Gentile physician. He was not an eyewitness of the things that we read in this account. Um, it's important to note this medical background because even in that day, perhaps more so, he would have been considered an intelligentsia. He would have been considered a scholar. The language he uses in the Greek New Testament, there's more vocabulary, more detail, more information than the other synoptics as well as the Gospel of John. Many consider Hippocrates the father of Western medicine. Luke's language, by some analysis, outruns Hippocrates. He's more knowledgeable as a physician, which we would expect, of course, with the passage of time. His command of language has students of the Bible mesmerized. Uh, his command of language is, is just remarkable. The way he writes is remarkable. His style is remarkable. You've heard me talk at length ad nauseum about chiasms or chiasmus, depending on how you pronounce it. The letter X in Greek is a key or a chi if you're in a fraternity or sorority. Uh, but the point of a chiasm, a literary device, is AA prime, BB prime, CC prime, so forth and so on. And then the letter in the middle, let's say F, these bookend and parallel each other, A and A prime go together, so forth. And the point of the chiasm is in the middle. Well, the structure of Luke, the entire gospel is riddled with these. And if you have a mind when you study to look for those kind of things, you'll be blown away. You'll, you'll, they'll explode when you're reading them like flares going off. There are so many of them. It's such an in-depth um, example of the structure of what he did. And it's a marvel if you like studying in that level of detail. Uh, for you uh, overachievers, there's a book I recommend for the gospel of Luke by Charles Talbert called Reading Luke. And there's nobody like what Talbert does. Now, this is a college-level kind of book. This isn't a book, you know, if it's not your deal, don't worry about it. But if that's how you're wired, Talbert observes things that you wouldn't see left alone for a year. And he puts it in such a way that it, his chiastic observations just blow your mind with the way he organizes. Now, it's not inerrant. It's not without some question marks here and there. But Talbert is extraordinary. And the thing I love about Talbert, he's written several books, is how he dismantles the uh, traditional views of parables, which are often misguided. The, 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 person, the woman that nags the judge for justice. The moral of that parable is keep nagging God, maybe he'll cave. Well, that's not what that parable's about. Uh, and he will give you the context of the parable saying, no, when, when you go to the judge, if a, a widow had a legitimate need and the judge declined to hear her, the audience of that day would have gone, oh, my word, no judge would ever do that. You see, the parables, and we'll talk about them uh, briefly in this gospel, the parables, everyone knew the context of those stories. Everyone understood every nuance of what he was talking about. We don't because we're separated by 2,000 years and we're not necessarily educated in how we think about these stories. And so Talbert uh, peels all these misinterpretations off. The neighbor, you know, who's going to help him at night. I won't spoil them all. But the, the, the idea of the judge, it's a parable about shame. It's a shame for an authority not to do the right thing. What, kind, what is God like? He's not like that judge. If there's an injustice and you come to God, you can be sure, men and women, he'll listen to your, your plea. And that's the point of the parable. And Talbert explodes these. Uh, it's the longest gospel. I've mentioned this before. And if you take the book of Acts, Luke is the largest contributor to our New Testament. Uh, the recipient named Theophilus, we don't know anything about him. 
His name in Greek means a friend of God or a lover of God. You can take it either way, which is interesting to know his parents' background, why they named him such. The phrase most excellent, we gloss over it, oh, most excellent Theophilus. Um, Luke wrote Luke and Acts. Uh, three more times in the account of Acts, you're going to read most excellent. And it's when Paul's referring to Felix or Festus. Felix and Festus were Roman officials. So that takes, you know, weird Bible geeks like me into deep, deep rabbit trails. Why do they use this phrase, most excellent, speaking to a Roman official? Ding, 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 ding. He's a Gentile. He's a, he's a doctor. Uh, he's educated. He's probably a Roman. And so we put some of these things together. The more important part to me is when Luke, the doctor, writes to his most excellent friend, think of an academic writing to a peer in a little different field. Um, you, you, know, you know me know I love medicine and I love talking to men and women in health care and I love learning and that, that was one of my decisions early in life was to go, try to go to med school or seminary. It's too late. Uh, but uh, I, I've always been um, enamored with men and women who can think that way and their minds and whether it's a surgeon or internal medicine or I mean just, it always impresses me. I love to learn from them. And it struck me, in a, and this sounds self-promoting, I don't mean it to sound that way, but it struck me when I was, I don't know, at some church, and I had lunch with a physician friend of mine, he was asking me all these Bible questions. And it's like, Doc, you should be teaching me. And he said, Michael, I went to medical school, not seminary. And just illustratively, so here is a trained physician writing to a, let's call him an intellectual peer of the day, who would be some kind of official. So it is an interesting speculation, but that, that explains so much about the book. Why does he use more d- detailed language? Why does he use more medical language? Why are his, his, his details more involved than the other gospels? Because you gotta know the context. What, who is this person? Who is he writing to? Why is he writing this? Obviously the movement of the Holy Spirit. Um, I was thinking uh, yesterday, uh, one of the men who comes to our uh, Saturday morning group is, is an attorney. And I almost always call attorneys counselor. I go, how you doing, counselor? And they smile at me, you know, because I respect that they went to law school. I mean, I like them. No, I'm kidding. I, I respect they went to law school. I respect they worked that hard. And when I know they're an attorney, I like call them counselor. That's sort of the language, most excellent. Or if you know, if, even if he's your friend, you, say, you call him doctor because you respect what he went through. You respect his training, the years of study to be a surgeon or whatever his or her field is. That impresses me. So we say in a, in a respectful way, doctor so-and-so or you know, your honor. Or if you have a friend who's been in Congress, um, I always call them honorable because their name when they're in Congress is the honorable so-and-so. So even out of office, I call them honorable, not their name, just to sort of you know, respect what they've done. J. Sidlow Baxter observes, whereas the emphasis in Matthew is on what Jesus said, in Mark it is on what Jesus did, and in Luke it is rather on Jesus himself. That's another one of those gold sentences that left alone for 10 years. I would not have made that simple of an observation about the three different ways that gospel writers look. What he said, what he did versus the person, Jesus himself. Similarly, uh, John Martin uh, writes in his commentary, Luke's gospel gives a reader a far more comprehensive grasp of the history of the period than other gospels. He presented more facts about the earthly life of Jesus 
than did Matthew, Mark, or John. So that's the big picture. Let's look at some observations about the gospel at a high level. Um, First of all, let me just note, and this may seem like the most obvious thing in the world, but Luke does emphasize God, Jesus, salvation, prayer, interestingly, discipleship, and very interestingly, eschatology, or end times, more than any other gospel writer. Now, you would think those would be sort of stock and trade, but those are the things Luke emphasizes. Um, he records four what we have turned into hymns, and these are amazing parts of Scripture. If you grew up in a church that had uh, Christmas musicals, or maybe uh, you were part of a Christmas pageantry or something like that, or you went to a church that used hymn books and had organs and choirs and rode people, etc., you know these things. Around Christmas time, your pastor probably taught through these passages. And they are the Magnificat of Mary, they are the Benedictus of Zacharias, the Gloria in Excelsis, and that's just one verse actually in the Gospel of Luke. That's when the angel, the host of angels says, glory to God in the highest and peace on, uh, on earth to men. And then the, the uh, Nucodemitus of Simeon, and that's a fascinating story. That's the old prophet who sees the baby Jesus. And he says, I can now depart in peace. I, my eyes have seen. And he quotes from a number of uh, Isaiah passages. Isaiah, uh, I think it's 9, 2 and others. But we have these four hymns. They're not in the other gospel accounts. So right away when you start looking at the organization, he is underscoring not just a, a genealogy like Matthew, but a legacy of who this Jesus is. And he does it in a beautiful way. They all underwrite the prophetic announcements about Christ, the predictions about him, if you will, and um, the point to who this Messiah is. Uh, interestingly, he's the only synoptic, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Matthew, Mark don't do this, um, that uses the noun of Savior or save. Now that may seem sort of like, who cares? But it, it takes you back if you think through it. If you're writing about the personal work of Jesus, wouldn't you talk about the Savior and salvation as a mainstay? Well, they do in other ways, but Luke, the doctor, doesn't miss a detail. And he points out the noun use of Savior and salvation. Now, the verb form, to be saved, is used throughout the New Testament, but Luke uses it more than the rest combined. The message is very clear about these messianic prophecies, the legacy of this guy. Why did he come? He came to solve yours and my sin problem. That was the reason. It's one of these things we need reminding of. Um, the son of man designation is used 26 times. He comes in second place. Uh, Matthew uses it 31. But that little phrase is a very important phrase. It's the fully God, fully man picture. Um, I've used the stock quote too many times perhaps, but you know, if he had not been God, he couldn't have done these things. If he had not been man, he couldn't have done those things. And that's one that I go back to again and again. Now think about this lineage for a moment, because we debate and scholars debate about the lineage that Matthew uses. Is it what's wrong? And it's Joseph and there's problems with it. And they get all tied around the axle about some of the difficulties in those lineages. Luke doesn't do it that way. Luke goes back before John the Baptist is born. Why is it important to tell this story? He's building a biblical theology of who this Jesus is. All the way back to the forerunner who is going to be John the Baptist. And he does in a beautiful parallel and chiasm between Elizabeth and uh, Zacharias and Mary and uh, Joseph. 
He does an incredible parallel between the person of John the Baptist and the person of Jesus Christ. And these stories that begin the book, the gospel record, lay a biblical theological foundation that the other gospels don't put together. It's a remarkable story. And you know these stories too well. Elizabeth with the baby, and she goes to visit Jesus, and the baby leaps in her womb. But the parallels and the structure of what he's doing in those accounts alone as he opens the book are all pointing to this is the Son of Man. His identity is not up for debate. Um, additionally, uh, the book of Acts and Luke refer to praising God more than any other New Testament writer. And this was a new one to me. Uh, if you just use a search engine on your software or probably any Bible, just a wiki, you know, if you put you know, praising God in the Bible, you will see right away Luke is the author most of the time. The other corollary is joy. Now step back for a minute. Here's a doctor, and he's describing praising God in joy. You know who tends to praise God and have joy? A person who was healed. A person who was sick. A person who had a loved one who was ill. And they're praising God, and they're happy about it. And so Luke, with his pen, uh, points out, praising God and joy more than the New Testament. That was news to me. Uh, depending on the classification of parables, and again, if you don't study the parables, I don't mean to, to uh, I don't want to confuse you or discourage you. Uh, labeling a parable isn't all that simple. Now, when Jesus says the kingdom of God is like, okay, he's giving us a story. But sometimes we might take a verse or two and say it's a parable. So, you know, weird academics and commentators like to debate the number of parables. It doesn't matter. Luke uses about 20 parables, and they're unique to Luke. So that draws more attention. So you're looking at what is he doing here? Uh, the broader audience he's talking to, uh, well, let me, don't get ahead of myself. Let's look at, I'm going to call this Luke's apologetic. I think what Luke is doing in the writing of his gospel is he uses individuals to tell a story of how Christ intersected their life and what happened to them as an argument to show Theophilus this is the truth. These are the facts. I've investigated. I'm marshalling my evidence for you. So you could say, if you're an apologetic person, the gospel of Luke is an apologetic to prove who Jesus Christ is. Now, again, that may seem like a stupid, duh, obvious thing, but if, if we don't take a moment to breathe, we miss the importance of what Luke is doing. He looked at the other records. He heard the other stories, and God's Spirit moved him and said, we need an account that has the details of this legacy and these stories and individuals to show this is what happened. This is really who he is. And a fact is a fact, so we're trying to demonstrate that. The individuals, the details of Zacharias' life, the story of the Good Samaritan, the story of the prodigal son, the story of the repentant tax collector, also known as Zacchaeus, the little wee Zacchaeus, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. What believer doesn't know the story of the two disciples walking onto Emmaus and this guy appears walking with them and they had this conversation and I mean, they've even got seminars, the road to Emmaus, whatever it's called, you know. What did Jesus, how, we would have loved, their hearts were burning. They're talking, and then all of a sudden they realize who he is, he's gone. Why does Luke record these? He's telling how Christ affected individuals, whether it was a real person or a parable like a prodigal, to marshal forth the evidence, this is who this guy is. 
This is who Jesus Christ is. Take a look at this. Understand, don't be unbelieving, be believing. The other thing that's uh, very important, and I think more so in our day than perhaps prior, prior decades, the role of women. Luke uh, talks more about the women in the gospel of, uh, about Christ's story than anyone else. Elizabeth, uh, Anna, Mary, Martha, Mary of Bethany, and also about kids, about children. And like it or not, in that day and age, women and children were second-class citizens. If you've been to different countries in the world, that's still followed. I've been to different countries where the men eat first, and what's left, the women eat. I've been in countries where they don't even associate, where the men go forward, the men walk, the men lead, the women are in the background raising the kids. It's a second-class citizenship. That's not unlike the New Testament time. And that's why Christ was such a, I hate the word, but such a liberator because he saw women as co-heirs to the kingdom of God. He saw women as people, not second-class citizens. He saw children as people, not second-class citizens. Um, another part of this that is striking, and again, we miss it, his emphasis on prayer is unparalleled. The Gospel of Luke and the record of Acts, he underscores the importance of prayer more so than any of the others. Um, so put these together, prayer, Holy Spirit, poverty versus wealth, medical details, uh, the God's offer to the Jews, to the Gentile, the sinner, the tax collector, the women, the children, the religious leaders of the day, and then it's going to end up with this very difficult section about discipleship, about the cost of discipleship. So if you step back on the story, what is Luke doing? I'm going to tell you, Theophilus, all the details I can recall about who he is. All my research, I'm going to marshal it forward so you'll know who he is. And I want to give you an accurate accounting because when you come to Christ, discipleship is an expensive decision. It's an expensive proposition to say, I'm going to follow Christ more than the world. I'm going to follow Christ more than the world's values. I'm going to follow Christ more than a poll or an opinion to count the cost. Luke's purposes are clear. They're not as definitive as John 21, but they're clear. I argue it is an apologetic. And by the way, I shouldn't presume that word doesn't mean making apologies. Uh, apologetic is a defense. You're making a defense. That's what the word means. You're proving your point. Always be ready to give an account. That's an apologetic. Um, his desire to preserve an historically accurate account of Jesus and Always keep in mind the first century hearers or readers or Old Testament hearers or readers, what their context, what they heard, what it meant to them, and how we carefully bridge that gulf and understand what it means today. The meaning doesn't change. The application changes. The meaning is what it always was and is, but if we take it out of context, we get into trouble, and that's where most heresies come from. Um, and then third, I would say some uh, argue that Luke's intended audience was a Greek emphasis because of his command of the Greek language. And I coined a phrase this week. Uh, I didn't read it anywhere. It may not be helpful to you, but I call it a, a culturally urban record of the day. So urban is, you know, this is urban language. Do you ever look at words? I, I have to confess, sometimes I get emails or text messages, and I go to my urban dictionary because I have no idea what they mean. I, I'm too old. I have to look it up. Well, this is an urban record to that world. So even though it may be academic and a lot of language and a lot of, let's say, 
academic scholarship in some respects with the structure. It's culturally relevant. I hate to use those phrases, but it's culture to the reader of the first century. And I would argue this book might have a little more appeal to a certain audience than the other gospel records. Well, uh, let me land with two lessons. And um, the first, they're both from two passages. The first is from Luke chapter 19, verse 10. We've mentioned it. Read it with me, if you would be so kind. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. You know the stories too well, more than likely. In Luke chapter 15, we have the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, the prodigal. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. In all those stories, that cultural climate would totally understand if you lost a sheep. Everyone's shepherds, and they have, they're shepherding in their family. You lost a sheep, what's he going to do? You're going to go look for the sheep. You lose a coin if you're a widow and your coins count literally. That's, that's like your inheritance, your investment, your retirement. And she finds it, and then, of course, it culminates in the lost son. The lost sheep and the lost coin go through a trend of uh, sort of, let's say, panic and then rejoicing and then joy when they find the item, find the sheep or they find the coin. But when you come to the prodigal, it's a much bigger story. All those lost and found stories are building chapter this verse. He came to seek and save that which is lost. So Luke 15 sets up these stories that everybody would understand. Oh, yeah, I know what that would be, that would be like if you're a shepherd. If you lost your, you know, your, your retirement fund, I know what that would be like if you lost your son. So that movement is super heavy on Christ's part and the way Luke records it. And then we come fast forward, he's eating with sinners. And the scribes and Pharisees are livid that he's running with sinners and tax collectors and Zacchaeus being one that you could easily point to. And he comes to faith in Christ. And that's the heels on which that verse is written. He's come to seek and to save that which was lost. Zacchaeus was lost. And now Zacchaeus is found. So this, this whole buildup of what does it feel like when you lose something? When I was in uh, finished grad school, um, we had some friends that, uh, Cindy and I had friends in this church we attended, and they wanted to do something nice for me. And um, in those days, Mount Blanc pens were just kind of getting attention to the rest of the commenters. And um, they were going uh, abroad, and I just made the comment to Cindy, you know, I'd, I'd just like, a, like one of those $50 Mount Blanc, that's what they were, $50 Mount Blanc ballpoint pens. And they got me one, and had my initials engraved in it, and I mean, I kept that pen. I had that pen for 15 years, and I lost it. You know how hard I looked for that pen? And I never found it. I never got to rejoice. But someone else bought me one, so I rejoiced in that. Um, and, and they're always broken. They're the worst pens in the world. They look pretty, but they always break. I've got six of them. None of them work. You know, it's what it is. But when I lost that pen, I, I felt, and I was like, this is a pen, Michael. It's a stupid pen. I felt, I felt a loss. You ever lost something that meant something to you? The ancients were no different than you and me. You lose something that's important to you. It, it, makes you, it breaks your heart. You want to find it. You lose a son or a daughter, you never recover. The prodigal picture is God's going to lose his son so that you don't have to. 
And that seek and save the lost picture is trying to draw at the, everyone in that audience would understand those stories. Everyone would understand, I came to seek and to save the lost. Wow. Because when you lose something, the greatest joy is finding it. And you need to find salvation. The next lesson comes from Luke chapter 11, verse 1. And let me just read this. It happened while Jesus was praying in a certain place after he finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, Teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. I saw this 40 years ago. I've never recovered from it. This phrase, uh, we we call it the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And it really should be called the Disciples Prayer. Because he's giving, this this is a framework on how you can pray. Now, let me remind you of Luke's importance of his record of prayer. I'm going to go through them quickly. 516, Jesus would often slip away to the wilderness to pray. Luke 612, at that time he went off to the mountain to pray and spent the whole night in prayer to God. Luke 928, eight days after these things, he took along Peter, James, and John and went up to the mountain to pray. Luke 18.1, he was telling them a parable to show them at times they ought to to pray and not lose heart. I have a friend in Texas that goes, why pray when you can worry? (laughs) We don't pray. We pray poorly. We say the same thing. We use meaningless repetition. I triple dog dare you when you go to lunch today not to say the same thing you said the last X number of lunches. Think how to pray a little differently. Luke 22, verse 40, when he arrived at the place, he said to them, this is before his crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane, pray that you may not enter into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw and knelt down and began to pray. A couple of verses later, not even an hour later probably, he said, and why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter temptation. It's all through Luke. It's all through Acts. Luke's record of he got away to pray Prayer was important to the Savior. Now, back to Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Did you notice when we read it? Lord, teach us to pray. It is the only thing the disciples ever asked Jesus to teach them how to do. They never said, Jesus, teach us how to walk on water. Jesus, teach us how to cast out demons. Jesus, teach us to teach like you. Jesus, teach us all the parables so we can mesmerize audiences with the parables. Jesus, teach us how to fill in the blank. The one thing they asked the Messiah to teach them was how to pray. Now, I don't know how your relationships go, but when I'm around people that are smarter than me or in different fields, I like to ask questions. I do tend to talk too much, but I also like to ask questions. And, you know, if you've got somebody who's really intelligent in their field, you're stupid. I'm stupid not to ask questions. I don't know how many times I've left a dinner or an appointment and I've gone, I should have asked so-and-so this. Why didn't I think of that? You know, you know what the definition of repartee is? What you think of the next morning in the shower? What I should have said. Uh, anyway, sorry. Um, but it strikes me, if you could ask any expert in any field to teach you something, maybe it's your sport, maybe it's your retirement, maybe it's your your 
course trajectory. If you're a college student, you know, I'm going to study, what should I take in college because I want to do this when I finish school. If you're in the music industry, you know, it's a whole different world today. How can, I love music. I feel like it's my passion. I want to do that. How do I? See, you're smart to ask other people who have succeeded in those areas, how do you do it? What, what counsel would you give me? They asked him to teach them how to pray. And I've never gotten over that request. You can call the disciples all kinds of things. We can make fun of them and call them dolts and they didn't get it. I think, I think we, that's overstating things. I don't think they were as stupid as sometimes we think. We're, we would probably have said similar or worse things than them. Um, but I'm struck that they had the presence to see how John's disciples were praying, to see how Jesus got away. And they looked at their own life and went, man, my prayer life stinks. I don't know how to pray. And what does he give them? The disciples' prayer. He teaches them. I don't know what you're asking Jesus for. Maybe you're asking him for healed relationships, maybe a better job, maybe health issues, maybe recovery, maybe pain management, <laughs> maybe one of your children's making some bad choices, maybe your job is really a mess right now, maybe you're worried about COVID, maybe you're, I don't know what you're asking him about. Have you ever asked him to teach you to pray? If we talk about this language, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and we fumble in our prayer life, what does that reflect? Guilt and shame never change us. It doesn't make us be better at prayer. But giving you information, I want to go into, I want to go into med school. Well, you better take inorganic and organic chemistry. You better make A's on everything to do with science. You're going to work really hard. It's an academic discipline. If you don't like to study, don't go into medicine. It ain't what it used to be. Someone's going to give you information. If you've got a PA or a nurse practitioner or a physical therapist or a guitar player, whatever, and you've seen how they've gotten there and you want to get there, you're smart. Tell me what I need to do to get there. The disciples had the wherewithal to say, I don't know how to have a relationship with you in prayer. How do I do it? That sets me on my heels. I would not have asked that question. So let's, let's pray what he said to them. Pray that in this way, together, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Ecclesia in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Gates.